Uh, well, as you guys know, this summer we've been working through the Apostles' Creed uh, line by line. And uh, in doing so, uh, we are joining uh, with the really brothers and sisters in Christ across the history of the church. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this, but Laura Homan, uh, one of, one of uh, the women who's a a woman who's a member here is a professor of church history. And I was reading one of her articles this week that talked about how the Apostles' Creed was used to teach people about the faith back in ninth century France. That what we are doing this morning in preaching through the creed is exactly what they were doing in churches all of those centuries ago. That there were people who were new believers, people who were facing all kinds of beliefs out in their world, and what their what their pastors, what their priests believed, is that if we can, uh, if we can give the these people uh, the creed, if they can memorize it and put it in their hearts, that it it'll enable them to engage in the world around them faithfully. These are, these are a lot of illiterate people. They couldn't read the Bible for themselves. They couldn't pick up devotionals about the Christian life. And so instead what they did is they, they memorized this creed, they wrote it on their hearts, and it became a way that they were equipped to participate in the life of the Spirit uh, themselves. So what we're doing here this morning in, in working through the creed, we're doing the same kind of sermon series that they were doing 11, is that 11 centuries ago? 11, 12 centuries ago. And I will say, I don't know if the, the whole idea of, of working through the creed is new for you. It is new for me. I have said the Apostles' Creed more times in the last two months than I have probably said it ever in my life up until this point. We're actually working on it at home. We're memorizing it together as a family because I want my kids to know it, that they have something that they can go back to. They can say, this is, this is the core of our faith. This is the essentials of what we believe. But I don't just want my kids to know it. I need it. We need it as an anchor, something that roots us deeply in the biblical story that tells us these are the load-bearing walls of the Christian faith. That all throughout the scriptures, we're encouraged to, to hold fast, to stand firm, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And the Apostles' Creed gives us a framework for understanding what that looks like. Okay, so this week, we're biting off uh, a big a big chunk of the creed. Uh, we're playing catch up a little bit. So I'm, I'm going to write it up here so we can kind of follow along as we go. Uh, the first part, he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Okay. Yes. Something like that. Suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was crucified died and buried and then he descended to hell. Okay, and if that, isn't, that, is, if that was not enough uh, for one morning, we're also gonna do, and on the third day he rose again. So this is kind of our, uh, this is where we're going this morning. And we're going to break it up into, into two parts. We're going to talk about this first part, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, descended to hell. You could call this, theologians call this, in many ways, the humiliation of Christ. We're going to talk about the humiliation of Christ and, and its implications for our lives. And then we're going to talk about, on the third day, he rose again, what you might call the exaltation of Christ. That's kind of how theologians refer to it. 
and the implications of that for our life. So those are kind of the two, the two places we're going to be working this morning. And I'm going to invite Shannon Cole to come up. Shannon is going to read uh, two scriptures for us. The first is out of Philippians 2, and it's going to address in a large part this first half of what we're talking about. And then she's also going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, uh, which is going to talk about the third day he rose again. So it'll also be up here on the screen so you can follow along as we go. So this is uh, Philippians 2, 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay. First Corinthians. It was 15. Is that right? Okay. Good thing I highlighted these. First um, Corinthians 15, 17 through 26. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the promises uh, that you have defeated death. Lord, that we are people who are in desperate need of hope and who need that hope, Lord, to animate our lives. Lord, would you explode that in our minds and in our hearts this morning? Uh, would you grow us in, would you mature us into the humble people of hope that you've created us to be? Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to focus first here on, this, uh, on the, the section of the creed that talks about the humiliation of Christ. And if you're wondering, man, we really have skipped over a lot, haven't we? We go straight from the virgin birth uh, to Christ's death. Yes, we skipped over a lot of Jesus' life. It seems a little bit out of balance almost in the creed to go from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Is, does anyone else? Yes? Okay. Are you guys with me this morning? <laughs> okay, good. Uh, I was thinking about, I, I read this biography of Teddy Roosevelt one time, and I got to like the last 50 pages, and he hadn't even become president yet. And I thought, now that's the most interesting part of the story. How are we going to get all of the, him being president into 50 pages? And then I realized this was a three-part biography. I'm like, 
Right, okay. I had a sense, right, that the proportion was, it was out of whack, that a biography shouldn't be that way, that it should be well-spaced, that equal attention should be given to every part of this person's life. And with that kind of perspective, the creed is off balance. But the creed is off balance because the gospels themselves are off balance. When you think about uh, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spend an inordinate amount of time on Jesus' last week of life. Fun fact, there are 89 chapters in the gospels altogether, okay? 30 of those chapters deal with Jesus' last week. The Gospels themselves are off balance, and that's because the Gospels themselves are not primarily biographies. They're not primarily about telling the story of the life of Jesus. No, the Gospels and and the Gospel itself, they're about a, a man on a mission. The Gospels are pointing us to the mission that Jesus came to accomplish. And Jesus identifies uh, his mission like this. He says this in Mark 1, at the very opening of Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That Jesus has come on a mission to announce the coming of the kingdom, to bring the kingdom into this world, to call people to repentance and, and, and to faith. That that's... That's his mission. And yet, what we see as the Gospels unfold are that Jesus is put to this horrible death at the end of the story. That's a strange way to end a story about someone's mission, isn't it? Because it would seem like Jesus' death would put an end to the mission. It wasn't accomplished like we thought it was going to be accomplished. Even his disciples thought that. There's this moment after the crucifixion where they're back fishing in Galilee. That they've lost hope and, and, and they have come to believe that the mission that Jesus was on has all come to naught. But what this passage in Philippians 2 tells us and what Jesus himself communicates to his disciples all throughout his ministry, what the very structure of the Gospels tell us is that Jesus' mission was not derailed by his death, that his death was actually a central part of the mission. This comes through in verses uh, 6, 7, and 8 of Philippians 2. As though he was in the form of God, this is, this is Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied, him, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what we're talking about there is what we talked about last week. That's the virgin birth, right? That Jesus humbled himself at the incarnation by putting on flesh. And then Paul skips over everything else in Jesus' life, who he was, his teaching, right? And he says, in being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That the focus of Jesus' mission, the, the, the focal point of it, the culmination of it, was what happened in that last week of his earthly life. That he humbled himself to the point of death. And that doesn't, that's not to diminish let me say this very clearly. It's not to diminish any of the other things that Jesus did, his life in any way. 
Of course, his teaching is so important. His healings are so important. His miraculous works so important. They testify to this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. And the last week of his life is when it all comes together. That this dying, this humbling of himself was central to his mission. Yes, his humiliation started at the incarnation. For God to limit himself and put on flesh, uh, that, was, that was humbling for God. That was humbling for Jesus to do that. Throughout his life, he experienced this kind of humility. You just think about the fact he was born into poverty, that his whole life he had nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a home. He was mocked, he was abandoned, his disciples. So often people who were following him turned away from him. Jesus was a, was a man who knew, who knew what it meant to live a life of humility. And yet it goes to another level with what we read in the creed, with what we read in the scriptures and what is pulled out in the creed. That he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor uh, the Roman governor of Judea when, when Jesus was alive. And Pontius Pilate condemned Jesus to death. And what Pilate does, if you remember, uh, the Jewish authorities bring Jesus to Pilate to have him tried and convicted. And Pilate tells them, I find nothing wrong with this man. He washes his hands. And yet, he gives Jesus over to death. We have an innocent man who is being condemned as a criminal. That's, that's the suffering of Jesus, the humiliation of Jesus. That under, Pi, under Pilate's authority, that Jesus was stripped, that he was beaten, that he was mocked, that he was spit on. And what, what this passage tells us in Philippians is that that is a choice that Jesus made to submit himself to that kind of humility. It didn't come upon him and was somehow out of his control that he willingly accepted it. And then he was crucified. But he was hung on a tree like a, a common criminal. That our passage highlights this in verse 8 when it says, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was one of the most humiliating ways a person could die. To be treated and tried as a criminal. And yet even this was a part of God's plan. It's a part of the mission of God being worked out. Paul describes it like this in his letter to the Galatians. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Every, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That Jesus, in choosing this mode of death to receive it at the hands of crucifixion, to be hung on a tree was a way of him saying, I'm taking the curse of God onto myself. We back up just a few steps. What we know is true over kind of the course of the Old Testament story is that God works with his people. He relates to his people through this thing called the covenant. It's like a relational contract. right? And a, and a covenant says, these are, these are your obligations as a person who is under the covenant. And, and then it says, this is what I will do as, as the king, as the person who kind of is executing this covenant. So we both have, both parties have responsibilities. And what the contract says, what the covenant says is, uh, if you keep the covenant, here is the blessing that's going to flow into your life. 
And if you break the covenant, here are the curses that are going to come into your life. And the curse of breaking the covenant all the way back from Genesis is death. And so what Jesus does when he hangs on the tree, he becomes a curse for us, is, is he swallows up the curse that we deserve. He crucified, he was crucified, he died, and then he was buried. And to say that he was buried emphasizes for us that he was, he was really dead. But he experienced the whole of the human story. And then we get to this piece, that he descended to hell. And there are a lot of, a lot of different ideas about what this part of the creed means. Uh, a lot of different ideas kind of in the tradition about what it can mean. It actually was probably a little bit of a later addition. And a lot of different ideas biblically about well, what, what, what could this phrase be about? And rather than, and what some people will do because of the questions around this is they'll just, they'll, they'll take it out of the creed or they'll kind of change the words around. And I think my, my preference for us is that we participate in the historic nature of the church that we say the things that have been said and that then we talk about the best way to understand them. And I think the best way for us to understand what it means that Jesus descended to hell is to understand that what Jesus did on the cross is that he, he took hell on himself on our behalf. But that's the, that was the culmination of his mission. Not that he descended to some lower part of the world, right? That's not what we're talking about at all, but that Jesus, on our behalf, uh, experienced the hell that we deserved. One way to think about it is uh, if you imagine yourself standing in front of uh, a dam, like the Hoover Dam, right? You've got all of these just trillions of gallons of water behind this dam. And that what we deserve, uh, and imagine, imagine with me that, that what is built up behind the dam is, is the wrath of God for sin. And what is true about us as covenant breakers, as people who consistently reject God's authority in our lives, that what we deserve is for that wrath to come down upon us. That we stand in front of it in so many days, in so many ways, heedless of the danger that is building behind the dam. And then when Jesus descended to hell, what happened is that dam broke. But rather than all of that water crashing in over us, that what Jesus did is he stood in front of it and he took all of it himself. That the force of all of that wrath, it hit, it hit him instead. Some commentators will talk about the fact that Jesus died uh, prematurely on the cross. He died much faster than people typically died. And the Potentially, part of the reason for that is the emotional toll that it took for him to experience the wrath of God poured out on himself. But he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, descending to hell, taking the wrath of God that we deserve to fall on us, and it fell on him instead. But that's why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that is not the last thing that Jesus cries. That Jesus' last words are, it is finished. And what that means is when that, 
that dam of God's wrath broke and fell on Jesus, that there's not one drop of that water that got on you, that gets on us. That there's no residual spray that we have to wipe off of our face, that it is finished, that all of the wrath has been consumed, it's gone. That there is none of it left. But that death, Jesus' death in that way, it was planned. It was part of his mission. But it had to happen that way. The Father sent his Son for that purpose. To restore our relationship with him. I saw a bumper sticker recently that said if there had been a second amendment, Jesus would not have died. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. As if, as if, if Jesus had, what, say, what, what the bumper sticker was saying is, if Jesus had had just a little bit of a better ability to protect himself, that, what had ha- that his death would not have happened. What? Jesus had all of the authority in the world. All of the authority you could ever imagine, he already had it, and he chose what this passage in Philippians 2 tells us is that he chose to use that authority in order to humble himself. But but his death didn't, Jesus' death didn't happen to him because of the circumstances. It's what he came for. It's what he chose, and he used his authority to willingly walk into that place on our behalf. He, he was bringing his kingdom and the first place that he chose to bring it is in your heart and in my heart through what he did on our behalf by descending to hell. Guys, that is good news. That what that means is there is no wrath left for you because of your sin, that it's finished. That when the things that are in your past come back to haunt you, when they come back to taunt you, that what you get to say to them is, it is finished because of what Jesus has done for me. That when you wrestle with the sin that you experience in your life on a day-to-day basis, when we wrestle with that on a day-to-day basis, what we can remember because of what Jesus has done for us is that we have died to sin. That it no longer has authority over you and in your life. That sin does not define you anymore. That you are free from it. And the world has no forgiveness that is like this that all the world can say is try harder, do better next time, and that is not the gospel. What the gospel says is you are free because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And what Philippians 2 tells us is that the means of our deliverance matters. that the means of our deliverance matters, that as Christ humbled himself, so what Philippians invites us to is that we would humble ourselves. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is the mind of Christ, the, the mind of Christ as he was humbled. The means of Christ's deliverance of us, it matters and it calls us to humility. I'm, I'm reading this book called uh, A Gentleman in Moscow right now. Have any of you read that book? Okay. It's been out for a while. It's pretty good, but I haven't finished it, so don't tell me how it ends if you have read it, okay? But it's, a, it's about uh, this man. It's historical fiction, okay? And his name is Alexander Rostov. And he is, uh, this is back in like the early 1900s or around the time of the Russian Revolution. And this guy, Alexander, is a count. So he's part of the, of the Russian nobility. Then there's the Bolshevik Revolution, the communists come to power, and, and all of that is swept away. And he's confined to house arrest in a hotel in Moscow. But from these big palatial rooms that he'd been living in, he's confined to essentially a closet in the attic. And his character says this, it says, when one experiences a profound setback in the course of an enviable life, one has a variety of options. Spurred by shame, one may attempt to hide all evidence of the change in one's circumstances. You might call that denial. In a, change, in a state of self-pity, one may retreat from the world in which one has been blessed to live. After you've been humbled, you push away from the world around you because you don't want to be seen in it. That'd be kind of, that would be kind of toxic shame. Or one may simply join the confederacy of the humbled. You may attempt to hide all evidence of the change in one's circumstances. In a state of self-pity, one may retreat from the world in which one has been blessed to live, or one may simply join the confederacy of the humbled. And what we see in the means of Jesus' redemption of us is, is that we are called into this confederacy of the humbled. Because humility, uh, it's coming for you. It comes for all of us. Whether it's a change in our circumstances, whether it's a confrontation, that what we are all forced to recognize and wrestle with at various points in our lives is the fact that, uh, that we are not who we thought that we were. That what we're forced to confront is the, is the pride that can be hidden in our hearts and in our lives. And the call for us as Christians, as people who are part of this confederacy uh, of the humbled, is to recognize that Jesus is, is bringing that humility into our lives as a gift. That he's bringing it to us because he loves us. That we have a choice about how we're going to respond to those things in our lives. And the call here is that we would choose to, to embrace the humility that Jesus is bringing us. And not only that we would embrace it when it comes into our lives, but that we would be a people who step out into it, who choose it for ourselves. Who look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
who put down our obsession with raising ourselves up high or lowering ourselves and thinking of ourselves so low, but that instead we would be a people who uh, cease to think about ourselves and who were instead able to see and to love the people around us. That that's the call of the creed on our lives, the call of the scriptures on our lives. Now, what we're trusting in embracing that kind of humility is that there is, uh, there is life for us in that call. We see that in verses 10 and 11 of Philippians 2. That it's precisely in Christ's humiliation, in that place of him being humbled, that God chose to exalt him. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That it's from this place of death that what God brought into Jesus' life was resurrection. It's the dying that allows the resurrection to happen because what's true about Jesus is that he did not stay in the grave. But on the third day, what we believe, what we confess is that he rose up, that he was resurrected, that we worship a risen Lord. And this is, this is what sets Jesus of Nazareth apart from any other teacher at any other time in world history. It's what sets him apart from every other philosopher, from every other worker of wonders, from every other person who has ever captured men's hearts is that our Jesus is a Jesus who rose again from the dead. That changes everything. It's the central claim of the New Testament. It's at the very heart of Christianity. You take away the resurrection, you have nothing. You have a good man with an interesting philosophy. But if it's true, if it's true that there's such a thing as a resurrection from the dead, well, that changes everything. You've got to ask, how can I trust that all of this is true? How can I trust that Jesus has taken uh, the curse of my sin on himself. How do I know? The resurrection. It's what speaks to Jesus' power, his ability. It vindicates him and says, yes, all of his promises are true for you. And it becomes for us what 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, an incredible source of hope. source of hope that grows in us throughout the course of our lives. And when we talk about Jesus being resurrected, uh, one of the words that gets used is, is first fruits. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, I've always wondered, well, like, what, is, what does that mean? Because there are people in, in the Bible who are raised from the dead before Jesus, you know? Like, there's this prophet Elijah, and he raises this woman's son from the dead. So chronologically, people have risen before Jesus. Jesus even raises people from the dead, like Lazarus. But what is true about all of these people who experience a, a kind of resurrection throughout the scriptures is that all of those people died again. The resurrection, but, that's, but that is not true about Jesus. That the resurrection that he experienced was qualitatively different. 
that he was the first man of this new kingdom, of a kingdom that's coming. And the kingdom that's coming, it is not fluffy clouds and floating on harps. It's not endless golf with God. That's not the heaven that we're talking about here. Now we're talking about a new heavens and a new earth. We're talking about all of creation being remade. We're talking about this world being redeemed and yet recognizable at the, as the world that God created and said it's good. And that in this recreated, this new heavens, this new earth, where there's no need for a son because God himself is among us and is our light, in that world, what Jesus tells us is that we will live there with him in our own resurrection bodies. What he promises us is that Christ in his power is gonna destroy every rule and every authority and every power that would oppose this new kingdom. That all of the evil that fights against this kingdom is gonna be put down and death itself has been and will be one day totally defeated. That's our hope. It's almost... At times to me, it feels like it's almost too good to say out loud. That it's something that would kind of need to be whispered. And yet what the New Testament does is it shouts it from its pages. It says, this is your hope. It's the hope that we gather together to celebrate, to remember, to encourage each other in. Will you just look around you just for a second? just with the people that are around you. You realize our, our hope that we hold together is that the people that you are sitting next to now will be people that you live with in a new heavens and a new earth, in resurrection bodies that, you, that, that will recognize each other there and that we will be together in this place where death has been defeated. And there are moments here where I can embrace that reality not just as a head truth, not just as something I'm saying as a part of the creed, but in my heart. But I will tell you, when I leave here, it can be very hard to hold on to. Do any of you relate to that? Like maybe at a funeral I can get there. I'm like, okay, yes, this is very emotional. Okay, this is good. I believe in it. I have hope for this. But on a daily basis, This is what Romans 5 says. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he accomplished here, right? That we have peace with God. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God that we look forward to the glory that's coming and we rejoice in that. Yes. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And that hope does not put us to shame. But what, what Paul is telling us here in Romans 5 is that in the places that we experience suffering in our day-to-day lives, that those are the moments 
that we are invited to take hold of the hope that we have been given and drag it into our present. When we're asking, what does it look like to hold on to that hope of a new heavens and a new earth now? The place that we're given, the crucible where that happens is in the moments that we experience suffering in our own lives. And one of the ways that we pull from that future and bring it into the present is in rejoicing even in the midst of our suffering. That's hard to swallow, huh? I remember talking to a mentor and I was doing what my daughter would call, um, she has what she calls her sad routine. And I realized I have my sad routines too, right? I was doing my sad routine with a mentor and he said, um, well, have you rejoiced in that? I was like, uh, what's up? It's like, oh, have you rejoiced in that suffering? No. And I don't really want to talk about it. <laughs> that's, how I, that's not what I said. That's what I felt, right? And what he really pushed me on is, hey, in this place of suffering, uh, would you praise God? And that praise, I will tell you, it can start, it can start not even focused on your circumstances, but the invitation is that we would start by looking at who God is and rejoicing in who he is. Praising him for who he promises us that he is even in the midst of our suffering. That he is good, that he loves us, that he's for us, not against us, that he never leaves us alone, that he's powerful, that he's sovereign, that he's over all of those things. And then what we find is that that rejoicing, that praising, actually can lead us to thankfulness. To thanking God for the people, for the, for the circumstances that he has placed around us, even in some ways to thank him for the suffering he's bringing into our lives. Not to thank him for the evil, but to thank him for the fact that he promises to use those things. What's true about thankfulness is uh, it cannot coexist in your brain with anxiety. That thankfulness and anxiety are in, I don't know where in your brain it is, but they're, they're in the same, they live, they live in the same place. That as we praise, that as we thank, what it does is it, it drives, it doesn't drive out the pain, it doesn't make the pain go away, but it roots us more deeply in the hope that we have of what's coming. That what it allows us to do is in the middle of our suffering to praise God, to say, Lord, I know that what is true is that this suffering will not have the last word in my life. That there will be a day when all things are made new. And that in the light of what we get to participate in, uh, not that this will all make sense, but that I'll know that you're, you were in it with me. That in the midst of our, of our struggle with sin, which I experienced this week when I was on vacation with my children, right? At this moment of leaving our vacation, where for an hour, as we were driving home, the first hour of the eight-hour car ride, I was just silent because my impatience had grown so giant inside of me. And Caroline asked, are you okay? And I said, I just need a little bit more time, right? That that, that that sin that's inside of me that I have to fight with, that there will be a day when that no longer uh, has authority, any kind of authority in my life. There will be a day when that sin is no more. And that in the midst even of experiencing and fighting against that sin, I can say to Jesus, oh Lord, I praise you, I thank you for the fact that there is a day coming where I will not fight against this anymore. Oh, that is good news. That brings the hope from the future and it, it wrestles it into the present where I need it 
where I need to be strengthened by it. Because friends, we do not need an example. (laughs) We need so much more than Jesus' example of how to live in this kind of humility. Because if all I have is Jesus' example, all I have is someone who can make me feel really bad about how bad I am at being humble. No, I need so much more than a good example. What I need is the power of God. And that's what the hope of a new heavens and a new earth is. It's God's power in our lives. No, it's not a good example. It's a hope that strengthens us to be the kind of people who can stand up in the midst of suffering and rejoice and thank It's what strengthens us to be the kind of people who can say, not only will I accept humility when it comes at me in my life, but I will actually step toward it. It is the hope of the new heavens and the new earth when it's wrestled into our present that that strengthens us for those things. And nobody else can do that wrestling for you but you. Of taking those truths and, and dragging them into the present of our lives. And in those moments, what we get to experience is the promise that, that this, this pattern that is at work uh, in the scriptures that we see in Jesus' life that's worked out in the creed, that it's death that gives birth to resurrection, that we get to live that in our very own lives. that we would get to pray like St. Francis prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive It is in pardoning that we are pardoned and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Uh, Lord, that you sent him, that he came, Jesus, that you came willingly. Uh, That you humbled yourself, that you suffered on our behalf. Lord, to bring your kingdom into our hearts and through us into the world. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for that. And God, are so, uh, so grateful that you did not stay in the tomb. Lord, that you uh, rose up, that you conquered death, Lord, that you brought us the promise of a new heavens and a new earth. So Lord, as we pray, as we worship now, Uh, would you sink that reality deeper into our hearts? Lord, would you strengthen us with the hope that we have in you? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.